Welcome to Authentic the Podcast. My name is Glenn Manton. 24 hours ago, I shared three questions with my guest ahead of this podcast. Each question was taken directly from the pages of my book, Authentic. I asked my guest to write one word or more in response to each question without prescription or provocation. I am unaware of my guest's responses and look forward to exploring his answers as we sit in an old EJ Holden by the water in Williamstown. My guest's name is Andrew. Andrew, welcome. Welcome, thank you. Let's explore right off the top your response to the question which I think provokes a lot of emotion with anyone to whom it's asked, what is your most treasured possession? The single word answer to that is watches. Watches. In 1926, my grandfather was given for his 21st birthday a Sima, Swiss-made Sima watch, and he repeated the, the, the favour to my father in 1956 and gave him a Swiss-made Sima watch for his birthday in 1956 when he was turned 21 and I've got my Simon watch which makes three generations and my intention my eldest son just turned 18 and my intention when he turns 21 is to give him a Simon watch which will have four generations and the idea is the watches get passed down the line. So you own three watches or one watch? I own three generations of the, of the watches. Three generations of a Simon watch. Now we've heard I'm sure the listeners have heard of a Seiko or a Tissot, these types of brands. A Sima watch, I'm unfamiliar with it. The listener may be unfamiliar with it. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular brand? Yeah, so it's a a, um, Swiss-made watch taken over in the 60s by the International Watch Company. It would have been a mid-tier Swiss-made watch. Probably the people that have a Sima, they think when they grow up they might have an Amiga, and the people that have Amiga, they think when they grow up they'll have a Rolex. So it's kind of a third-tier, sensible gentleman's watch. Beautiful watch, Swiss-made, middle of the market. And what makes this watch so special to you? Is it the fact that there is craftsmanship involved or thought behind it or a combination of both? Why is the watch so important? I think it's not actually so much the watch itself, although I love watches. It's the story behind it. So depending on where I'm going, I'll wear two watches. I'll often wear one watch on one wrist and my grandfather's on one wrist and my dad's on another or mine on one wrist and my dad's on the other. It just depends where I'm going. So it's just it's more than just the object itself, which is... I think, you know, I think they're beautiful things. It's the ability, in fact, I'm wearing my father's watch today. It's just the ability to take him with me when I want to go somewhere. The listener obviously can't see the fact that you are wearing your father's watch. I'm looking at the secondhand tick around. So this is a fully functional, generational watch that's continuing to be worn and uh, taking pleasure from this watch on a daily basis. Yeah, daily basis. Grand, uh, granddad's watch. You can't wear all the time, so that was uh, 1926, that's getting pretty old, you've got to be a bit careful with that one. But this is a fully functioning daily watch. This is the watch I've been wearing daily now for about six months. I'll swap it back to mine sometime, mine's in for repair, and then on the odd occasion I'll take grandpops out, sometimes I'll wear two together. And you mentioned the idea around purchasing one for your eldest son. Uh, Is that something that you'll do unilaterally or you'll do with his... Uh, participation does he know that this is going to happen is he aware of the tradition behind this yeah I think I think he'd be he's certainly aware of the tradition and I think that he would have an expectation that he'd be getting one of these watches when he's uh, 21 and I think that I'd buy it for him I think it would be something that I would buy for him not something that I'd do you know um, collaboratively it'd be something I'll think about in fact I'm already looking for the watch 
Right. I've got two boys, one's 15, one's 18. I'm already watching, looking for the two watches. I know exactly what I want, and it might take me two or three years to find each one. And will this watch be purchased new or as part of the mystique of this possession, so to speak, that you'll look for it secondhand or you'll look for it for some particular nook and cranny in the marketplace? Yeah, it does, it does um, create a challenge because they, they, you can't buy them new anymore because they became the international watch company. So I will look for, for a vintage watch by Sima, pre-international watch company. So what era are we talking there? 60s. So 60s. 50s or 60s. So can you give us a snapshot in your mind's eye how many of these watches would be in existence? There's a lot of watches around. Right. Um, you know, and a lot of them on the market. Watches are a great item for getting stolen. Mm-hmm. So they turn up on the second-hand market a lot, and there's a lot of them around. And I would expect to be able to buy a watch in the, from the mid-1950s that's possibly never been worn. Two questions for you. What is the value of the watch? And what of that value to your son's? It's a vague question, deliberately so, but what is the value of the watch and what is the value of the watch to your sons? So I think the value of the watch, if you're talking dollar terms, might be £750, £1,000. I'll be most likely to find them in England. But I think what the value of it to the boys, and it is to me, is that it's just that constant generational reminder of who you are. You know, it's, a real, it's a great way to remember every day when you look at your dad's watch. It gives you a real sense of, real sense of place and who you are and a continuum of tradition really well let me push the envelope there who are you who am i that's a very good question i think i'm uh, i'm genuine i share i'm creative uh, i'm tenacious and i love taking a risk and are they the qualities that you're hoping this watch will promote and inspire within your sons yeah, I think heritage is, you know, I think who you are is, is, is made up of where you came from and the, and, the, and the lineage, and the more you're reminded of that, then the more likely you are to behave that way. You know, if you cut yourself free from any of that stuff, then you're less likely to refer to it, and who knows where you might end up. So if I recap and do some math here, we have three watches currently, mm-hmm. each around about $1,000 worth of value. Mm-hmm. It's a limited marketplace. They're not on every street corner. Mm-hmm. So I turn around today now and offer you $6,000 cash mm-hmm. for the three watches. Oh, no, they're definitely not for sale. At $6,000, they are not for sale? No, not for any money. They Why not? Just, they're simply not for sale. Why not? Because of what they are and what they mean to us as a family, to me, to the generations, to the boys. It's not, a, it's not something that's about money. What if the boys wanted to sell them? I'd be very surprised if they did. I'd be disappointed if they did, I think, and I'd be very surprised if they did. Your two sons are a, a long way away from developing their fatherhood traits and passage, if you will. They have a little girl. Mm-hmm. Is this something that can be passed down through a, a female side? Yeah, of I think so. Too? And they'll work out their way of doing it, I think. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So they'll get their watch when they're 21. And they'll, then, then the eldest, I guess, I'm not sure, but I guess the eldest will get the next three generations when I pass away. They'll go to him. So it's a long process. I got, my, I got my dad and my granddad's when my dad passed away. So, you know, so the, so the process for them to get them all will take 30 years. Hmm. It's an interesting process. Whilst we're on the idea of processes, maybe we can ask a question relating to the processes of your life, Andrew. And the simplicity of this question is profound, but the answer I'm interested in as to what you might throw forward. What advice would you give 
a younger you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and the, uh, the one word answer I think that I came up with is share and talk. Share and talk. So, you know, share things that are going on, share things that are hard. Um, when I was a youth, when I was 15, 16, I was abused by my dad's best friend and I never shared that. So I spent the years between 15 and 30 not knowing what I was missing out on. I didn't realise what I was missing out on until I admitted it and shared it. And then I saw all these things that didn't exist in my life. I had a great life. I had a ball. I travelled the world. I was explored. I took risks. I did loads and loads of things. I had, you know, a great big list of things that were really good. But when I realised that I hadn't shared this major problem in my life that had gone on for most of my youth, I realised what I, what I didn't have, what wasn't present. And there was no commitment, particularly commitment. There was no commitment to anything. I was, wouldn't, couldn't tell you on a Friday what I was doing on a Saturday. Couldn't tell you this week whether, which country I'd be in next week. I'd just run, sort of run, kind of running around. And I realised that there was a real lack of trust in people and commitment. So where's that trust and commitment now? With, well, 10, with 10 being at its optimum level and zero being where you potentially were, where, where do you place it now? Sometimes it's 10 because you know how to do it and sometimes it's zero because you forget to use the, use the skill. So it's not, it's not quite as black and white. It's not always 7 or 8 or 9 or 10. Mm-hmm. But knowing that you can do it allows it to be 10. And, and, when I, and when I really fully share what I'm doing and fully you know, um, you know, give up to commitment, it's, you get some really great results out of it. But then sometimes you go back into your shell and you get scared and you don't do anything for a while. What forces you back into your shell? Probably scared, probably scared of success. You know, probably the fact that, you, that shit, this thing might actually work. You, know? you step out there and you create this future and other people get enrolled in it and join in, and you think, fuck, I'm scared. <laughs> Somebody might actually take this thing up, might actually make this thing work. And I've seen that since I've, since I've taken on this, this thing around commitment, I've seen what, can, what you can actually produce if you put your mind to it and you actually share things with people and you enrol people in an idea. You can actually produce some really great stuff. A lot of people would suggest that uh, commitment, idea sharing, growth, uh, passion, uh, limitless, that once you do it, Anything's possible. Do you subscribe to that theory? Uh, no, no, not necessarily. I think that all of this stuff is framed and it, it comes in a certain frame. So some people are really good at sharing, some people are really good at commitment, but they might not be so good at other things. It's just about, it's not about doing lots of what you're good at. It's actually about finding out what's stopping you and what, and when, what you can't see and the unknown, the things that are unknown. And for me, commitment was unknown. So unlocking that was a real gem for me. I had communication in spades. I had, you know, I had laughs and communication abilities and, you know, the ability to make money and do a job and travel. I had all that in space, but I didn't have the commitment bit. So whatever it is that you don't have, that's the one that really gives you more power than any, any of the tricks that you've got up your sleeve that you do have. The listener can't picture potentially where we're sitting now. We're sitting on the docks down at Williamstown with the city of Melbourne, illuminated by the afternoon sun in the background, when you look upon the city of Melbourne and compare it to the world that you've traveled and you alluded to the broad array of traveling experience that you've had, and you think about the people that you come across, is there any section of the community that you think shares very well and any section of the community that you think struggles to share, whether it's based on sex or generation or occupation is, are there any standouts there? Oh, look, you could be really general. Um, 
Mm, yeah, and I think that, the, that you could, you know, you could be really general. I think that the less people have got, the more they're prepared to share. The the uh, the, the more people have been prepared to give up, the more they've been prepared they're prepared to share. A perfect example these days is the, is the refugee situation. You know what what that what those people have given up, we've got no idea, and 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 they and they would have worked out pretty quickly that you share and you get something back. So and then I think there's a whole world of you know, middle-class white Australia that doesn't know how to share and is desperately clinging on to what they've got, you know, whether it's their house, you talk about value for watches, you know, all they care about is the value of their house, the car they've got, the school their kids go to, you know, none of that's sharing. That's just about things that I've got. So I, I do think that Melbourne is, and the world, but in Melbourne you see it mostly split between, the, you know, the, the aspirational middle-class people who are holding on to things and don't know how to share and don't know how to really engage, and the newcomers that have arrived with nothing and, are, you know, up for anything that, that they can get out of society by you know just being a member of it. You got a Footscray, it's a perfect example. How so? Food, brilliant. Completely welcoming every restaurant you go into. You know, just their whole, you know, they, they know who they are, they know what they're doing. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive, doesn't have to be flash, it can be 10 bucks, served with a smile. Brilliant food, brilliant culture. Let's touch on a final question. Skip around to a another beat so to speak what would you say has been the most influential style form artist lyric piece of music that you've come across in your life you strike me as somebody who would have a fair bit to say about this particular <laughs> question uh, the answer to the question in one word is 1983 1983. <clears throat> so 1983. 1983. So they say that when you're the, the music that you're into when you're 18 is the music that you take forward for the rest of your life. So I was 18 in London in 1983. I got there when I was 17 in 1982. Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister. Ronald Reagan was the President of the United States of America. I was young punk. It was the second half of punk, really. Punk sort of started in 78, so it was really the, a, a mature punk version. It wasn't the raw punk, it was the second half of punk. And a little bit later in 83, 84, it was the beginning of the new romantic scene. Lots of pop going on. So London was completely electric with this vibe that had, I don't think has ever been repeated and hadn't been around since really the early days of rock and roll. It was a brilliant scene. And, and, I, and I was into it live, mostly. We used to listen to it on John Peel at night. That's where you heard about it. We didn't really buy records because we weren't home often enough to listen to them. So mostly it was seen live around the clubs of London, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham. And they were, so at the time they were, because of the political situation, there were lots of protest bands, you know, some and the, the brilliant protest bands like The Clash, U2 as they started out, Stiff Little Fingers. In Australia you probably had In Excess, probably, as the big protest bands. But then on the other side in the UK you had the pop bands, you know, the, in the same, you put them in the same bucket, but it's completely different look and feel. The, the, the Undertones, The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, all pop songs really, essentially. And then you had a whole bunch of experimental stuff going on around in the background, stuff like The Stranglers. And when you put it all into a soundtrack, it comes out, you know, it's some of the best music that I reckon I'll ever hear. Of course I think that because it was the music I was listening to when I was 18. But it was very much mixed with the live scene, up the front, you know, in the bar, tiny bars, not very many people around, you know, in terms of wh where you go and see these bands now. So we'd go and see The Clash in a hall with two or three hundred people, you know, or you'd see the undertone supporting Stiff Little Fingers in a hall with four hundred people. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to ask: When you were seeing the Clash play in a hall with two or three hundred people, did people know that they were the Clash, or were they becoming the Clash? They were becoming the Clash. Did everyone have a sense and feel that these guys were going to be something special, or there was still a bit of a jury that was out? I, I think when these bands started to become 
popular, it really created a bit of conflict for us because we didn't quite know what to do with it, you know. And next thing you know, you go and see U2 in a concert hall. It's like, mm, okay, right. And now they're playing stadiums. But, you know, the first time I saw them was in Kidderminster Town Hall with 150 people. It was 50 pence to get in. And we saw them grow progressively and then they all you know, ended up in America. And so they, it was a conflict for us. They were kind of ours. We owned them and they owned us. It was such a great scene. It was audience and band. You've listed a number of artists and, again, not everyone will be familiar with all of those artists, but I think it's safe to say most have heard of you too. 50 pence yep. to see them play live back in the day in inverted commas. Yep. No doubt, a hell of an experience. Yep. Where have they gone? Have they fulfilled everything you imagined they would? Did they sell out? Have you lost faith? I don't think, I, you picking you two, I don't necessarily think that they sold that. I don't necessarily think that they did themselves many favours on the way through the journey. Uh, how but so? how could they? I mean, you know, they, they, were, they were unbelievably successful, probably one of the most successful stadium bands in history. There wouldn't be many others like them, maybe Pink Floyd, you know, that can really set up a stadium properly and do a real gig in them, not just a, like an act. So I don't think they could ever be the same as they were in 1981 in Kidderminster Town Hall with 150 people, you know. So to expect them to be the same, I think, would be unfair. I, I think that, you know, and they were a protest band who protested against anything that involved, you know, any kind of elevation, you know, politically, socially, financially. And now all of a sudden they're, you know, shitloaded stardom, you know, right at the top of the A-list. It's been a difficult journey for them, I have no doubt. I'm not really, it's not for me to judge who they are and how they go. I think there's great bands around that still produce really good progressive music. Echo and the Bunnymen are a really good example. I'd still really like their latest albums. The latest albums are as good as their first albums. And there's lots of bands that just get up there and carry on playing out the same stuff as they always played. I saw the Buzzcocks the other day at the Corner Hotel. Bloke just got up there and said it was a long time ago and I'm still having fun. And they cranked out two and a half hours worth of 44, you know, four minute songs. Walked off, that was it. Great. How did that make you feel? Because the Corner Hotel is an iconic venue. The Buzzcocks, without doubt, are an influential part of the music scene. As you said, that punk scene. Did it take you back to 1983? Oh, completely. And everybody that's in the audience was there for the same reason. Completely takes you straight back there and you can have loads of fun doing it. Still get down the front, you know, still drink beer with both hands, you know. And what if somebody who would suggest that your time's passed for doing that? No, I totally disagree. It's great fun. Great fun. Live music's easily the best thing you can go and do. And losing yourself in a, in, a, in a moment like a band is the great fun. You come out, you wouldn't have a clue whether you were there for an hour or five hours, a day or two days. If I, if I took music away from you, what would be left? Oh, I think music very much guided my youth. That was kind of, that was what, that was kind of what I did. That was my pathway. Would that, there be a hole? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, I still listen to it. I still refer to it all the time. Do you still have a vinyl collection? Oh, absolutely. I still listen to it all the time, yeah. yeah. One of the greatest things, I turned 50 last year, and one of the best things about doing that was putting down my soundtrack which didn't necessarily, it centred around 1983 in that period, but there's lots of stuff that I listened to that caused me, that that period caused me to listen to, that I was finding out, discovering new things through my 20s, through my 30s, through my 40s. It gives you a direction. A soundtrack for your life. A soundtrack for my life. Is there one song that stands out? Oh, that's a hard question, but of course Teenage Kicks by um, Undertones would probably be one of them. Anything by Fergal Sharkey would probably be brilliant. And is there a lyric that stands out? Is there a lyric that stands out? Something um, that just captures your imagination or stirs the pot or has provided some guidance or insight? I really like the, 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 the single, uh, the, the, the title of the Stiff Little Fingers song, Alternative Ulster. 
when these kids were youth, you know, they were all the same age at 16, 17, 18, and they were up on stage cranking their guitars out, dreaming of a different world, because it was shit in Ireland in 1981, 1982. So, and, and, they, and they probably caused a lot of the change that, you know, through the troubles that came to the peace accord. So, you know, I like the idea of alternative Ulster, because it can be different. Just give us a quick snapshot into what was so shit about that space because I'm listening to you and as I already explained to our listeners I can clearly see the city of Melbourne behind us it looks magnificent it's a beautiful afternoon here in Williamstown it was a long way from Ireland though and 2017 is mm. a long way away from the early 80s what was so shit about those times oh it was brutal the troubles in Ireland were brutal you know if you you know it was all done in whispers and if they weren't sure if you were right or not they'd take you out of the back of the pub and shoot you in the back of the head you know, people dead, you know, that was a regular thing, you know. It was a brutal war. It was a brutal war. Based They'd, around religion? Uh, based mainly around religion. Yeah, they, they took religious lines, political lines, religious lines, north and south. There was a whole bunch of things that concocted to cause it to be so brutal. And, of course, because it was such a tiny place, uh, it, was, there was a, it was a run, you know, on hearsay, basically. He said the wrong thing, he got shot in the head. So as a teenager, did you just see people or did you see religions? Oh, people. I didn't really understand the... I understood the troubles and the, and the issues, but I didn't really understand the political background probably until I was 30. I did, we didn't see it through those eyes. We, 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 weren't, we weren't looking at it on a, on a political level. We were looking at it on a, you know, this is you know, just, just how outrageous it was and how it affected us. And you could feel the tension. You, particularly in London, you could feel the tension. It's been an extraordinary conversation with you, Andrew, and of course, our listener, hopefully more than one, knows you only as Andrew. May I ask, who is Andrew? So my name's Andrew Egan, I'm 51 years old, I live in Williamstown, and I've got a business called Egan's Asset Management in Footscray, and I guess if anybody wanted to find me, they'd probably be best to see us on www.egans.com.au. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Really appreciate your honesty, your insight into those three questions. And I do encourage people, should they wish to continue the conversation, to look further into Andrew's background and uh, take the time to uh, engage in conversation. Thank you for listening to Authentic, the podcast. Whilst we're out of time now, we can continue the discussion electronically via Facebook and Instagram, where you will find me by searching Glenn Manton and further material associated with this podcast by searching Authentic. To purchase a copy of my book, Authentic, please head to www.glennmanton.com.au forward slash book. I look forward to your company again soon.